Hello there, welcome to the Russian Religion Show, where we discuss religion, science, and society. My name is Omar Nasser, and I'm here with Brother Dahar, as always. Peace be on you. As always, I think it's our like, third or fourth episode. And uh, Brother Demir Musa Rafi, who is the um, editor of the Rational Religion blog, and www.rationalreligion.co.uk. And welcome to the show. Peace be upon you. Thank you for having me on. No worries. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm... Um... A junior doctor working in London, um, hoping to go into psychiatry and um, have an interest in mindfulness, having done one course in it a few months ago. Excellent. And you've just written a, a fantastic um, article on our blog on rationalism.co.uk. Uh, Dara Bajan, you, you read it, didn't you? What did you think of yeah, it? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, so that's what we're going to be discussing because uh, you had a lot of insight going, um, I think, coming out of that course. And from the sounds of it, you stirred some trouble which we're going to talk about as well. Um, and then you've written about it and uh, we're going to be releasing that presently. And because of your religious background as a, a member of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, as a young British Muslim, um, you were able to kind of have additional insight into kind of the benefits and the, and the disadvantages of mindfulness. And uh, basically, especially in your first draft of your article, you were just like, this is, this is just all a bit of a sham, isn't it? It's interesting because my perception of it changed so significantly over the course of the eight-week period. Really? And I think going into it, um, you know, you hear, hear a lot about it being a revolutionary uh, practice. I read an article that said, is mindfulness, you know, the next, the next revolution? It was in Time magazine. Hmm. Um, the mindfulness revolution, that's what it was called. Yeah. And I thought, this is great. Like, this is something that's going to change the world. Um, and going into it, I came in with a positive attitude and I learned many things along the way about what mindfulness is, about perhaps the reasons why it's got so big, mm -hmm. uh, and about the, the problems and the pitfalls with it. Okay. Um, so that's a nice tantalizing, uh, preview. What we'll do is, well, uh, watch something from the Headspace app, which is the one, the main mindfulness meditation, um, apps, and then we'll dive into your story. So let's watch this. Think of the mind as a still pool of water. Each thought is like a raindrop. It creates a ripple on the surface. If it starts raining very hard or it's perhaps a little windy, then the pool might become so cloudy that we can't see what's on the bottom. But the potential to return to our still pool of water is still there. In fact, by training the mind, the ripples naturally begin to slow. And as the surface of the pool becomes still, it gets easier to see what's beneath the surface. Sometimes we might like what we see, at other times, well, maybe not so much. Now, occasionally finding things we don't like may sound off-putting, but it's really important because it's part of letting go of those things. Accepting what's in our mind also helps us to be less critical of ourselves. It can even help us to be less critical of others. So we start to feel more content in life, to experience more harmonious relationships, and to be more at ease with the world around us. Sounds amazing. So um, what they basically say, they said a few things there. They said, you know, there are troubled waters and if you can still them, you can see what's underneath. And then you can have this kind of non-critical awareness of it, what they call this non-judgmental awareness of, uh, of yourself and what's deep in your mind. And that leads to better relationships with others and um, better relationship with yourself and a revolutionary mindset uh, and essentially enlightenment. 
is is the implement is the, is is a lot of the implication of modern mindfulness. Um, so why don't you kind of walk us through what you thought of mindfulness before going in, and then your early experiences with it? Uh, and actually, should we should we define mindfulness first? I mean, would you be do you want to define it first? Loosely, um, and then we can we can discover what it, I guess what what you found it to be. Sure. So the origins of mindfulness actually um, can be traced back to Buddhism. So Buddhist religious teachings uh, use the word mindfulness specifically uh, to refer to uh, one of the aspects that can lead an individual to liberation or to salvation. And alongside mindfulness, there were other things. So there was um, understanding well, having good intentions, having um, good actions in your life, uh, living with um, kind of good morals. And what this kind of new spiritual, uh, secular spirituality has done is taken mindfulness and uh, made it into a, a scientific slash spiritual discipline um, applicable to the kind of current modern age. Uh, so that's essentially what it is. And um, going into it, I, I thought that sounded like a really good idea. I'd watched some of these Headspace um, adverts, which mm -hmm. seemed like it was a perfectly harmless thing. And I went into it with a very positive mindset. Yeah. Um, so, so what was? Tell us about your your. Pajun, <laughs> you're laughing quite a bit. What are you laughing at? I know, I know the story, so I know where this is going. <laughs> I like how he's setting it up, right? He's setting it up. Yeah, he's like, oh, it's so positive, and <laughs> oh, it's so interested, and oh, I could just see like a little child walking into school on the first day, so eager, and then. Uh, it makes it sound like we're, we're digging up some kind of really bad details, some sordid details about what it really is. <laughs> Beware of mindfulness. I don't think it's quite dra that dramatic. Uh, it's, overall, it's I think not, you're just it's underwhelmed. Still, it's, <laughs> it's still an interesting story. It is. So, um, so please, the floor is yours. That's about so, the first session, I guess. Well, the first session um, was a series. Well, the first session, actually, the first exercise we did was an eating meditation. Uh, so we were each given a, a cranberry or a raisin, something like that, which immediately I, I didn't like because I really dislike raisins. And so I struggled in the very initial stages. And we were told first to just look at the raisin, just see how it felt on our palm, um, look at the edges of it, look at the shape, look at the, the kind of feel the texture. And we were told then to put it into our mouth and not swallow it, but just kind of see how it feels around our mouth with our eyes open and then we were told to close our eyes and just think more deeply about the tastes of the raisin, um, about how it feels in our mouth. It was excruciating because I don't like raisins. <laughs> it was really, really excruciating. But anyway, um, so finally, after a long 10 minute period. Um, so I, basically I, forced you yeah. to slowly eat something you dislike. Exactly, one of my least favorite foods. So it was, it was a struggle. Um, I don't think that's, that's shaped my whole experience, but it was a bad start. I think start. it may have, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, you need to reflect on this. But this really set the tone. So it was basically a long process in order to really think about all the actions that we were doing. So the first one was eating. Uh, and then after that, we moved on to different things. So walking meditations, where we would just walk around the room and we would think about where we were have kind of an awareness of our present moment, think about things uh, non-judgmentally, meaning that we don't kind of think, oh, why is this person standing in this place? Why is somebody doing this or that? It was to think about things in a very kind of open-minded, non-judgmental way, having awareness only of the present. 
Um, so not thinking about kind of what's gone before or, you know, hopes or problems in the future that we might be facing. So it's about living kind of in the moment and appreciating the moment for what it is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he walked, I was doing this kind of around a hospital facility. So he walked like around the, the psychiatric hospital for about 20, 30 minutes, one week. Um, one week we walked around the gymnasium and it was all about kind of that aspect of being aware um, yes was this the was this like a stand is this a standard nhs course exactly it's uh, it's called mbct so it's called mindfulness based cognitive therapy yeah and it's a standard course that was used in um initially in kind of depressed patients or patients with emotional dysregulation yeah and then slowly it got moved out from hospitals um to other parts of society so now it kind of permeates all strands of society, essentially. It's in law firms, parliaments, major corporations, all sections of society. This specific standard course has been implemented, basically. Okay, so you've been, you were walking around, uh, and what, what kinds of things did they ask you to do? Like, what was the purpose of that exercise? The purpose of the exercise was to think about how we were feeling. So I guess the whole purpose of mindfulness is to reduce one's stress and to be able to be more connected with our emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think part of, uh, part of that practice is to be able to be aware of our emotions in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and that was the purpose of the exercises. So some were short, like five minute meditations, others were 20 minutes. So one was called a body scan, whereby basically you, they made us think about every part of our body kind of one by one. And we just kind of had a tour in our mind of the different parts of our body and how we were feeling and Mm -hmm. how connected we felt and all of these kind of things, Um, which was interesting initially to do kind of for the first and second times. It felt rather long, but it was was fine. Uh, That that sounds like a useful skill for people with like uh, anxiety or just general emotional dysregulation, because uh, a lot of the times they have um, symptoms which are like somewhat somatic, i.e. physical. So they can have a very tense, you know, whatever it is, tense chest or, or tense muscles and be, becoming aware of that is probably useful because then you can presumably reduce your tension there and that will help your mental state. Is that part of the idea? Definitely. And I think that's the original purpose of this course. So it yeah. wasn't initially meant to serve all strands of society. It was meant to be for patients with personality disorders who struggle yeah. to re- regulate their emotions well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like alongside these uh, meditation practices, we also had quite interesting discussions. Yeah. Um, so one of them was, for example, thinking about this concept called emotional granularity, which means, have you heard of this? Because uh, I read your article, yeah. <laughs> oh, fine. Yeah, yeah. So it's essentially um, how a person can pinpoint their emotions simply by being able to describe them in words. So the more precise our vocabulary, the better we're able to actually figure out, oh, this is exactly how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. And thus, this is how I can deal with the emotion that I'm feeling better, rather than just a general, I feel sad kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, that also so sounds yeah. quite positive. I mean, I know you had the bad, the traumatic experience mm. with the raisin, which you, you know, may have to have some kind of counseling for. But after that, it sounds like there's been some, some useful stuff. Um, so what, what happened? I mean, actually... What happened? And also, can you tell us a little bit about when you went past that ward? Because I think that was that was a really interesting uh, experience that you had. Yeah. So this was a walking meditation that I was doing. Um, we were all doing. It was quite a bizarre experience because we met in the cafe of uh, a hospital that we were we were working by. 
and, nicely um, anonymized there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and we walked kind of all across the corridors. We walked up and down the stairs. We walked outside, kind of around the hospital. We took a tour. We went past like the houses nearby the hospital. So it was a good like 30, 40 minute walk, um, all in a single file line in silence, which looked very strange to bystanders and observers. <laughs> um, so that was that. And they told us essentially, again, just to think about things in the present moment, non-judgmental awareness, uh, which I did, but I walked past a ward where I'd previously worked uh, and I suddenly felt kind of negative emotions because I'd worked on this ward and I would had bad experiences there. And after we had finished the walking meditation, I asked my mindfulness instructor, I said, well, what do you do in this situation? Because the whole point of this is to think only in the present moment. And I had this bad experience and I had this negative emotion. So what am I supposed to do? And his response, he kind of smiled and he said, this is the whole point of mindfulness. Welcome to mindfulness. Um, meaning that this is, this is essentially the, the objective to be able to shun these thoughts completely mm -hmm. uh, and kind of get rid of them. So we're in a total state of non-stress, basically. Yeah. So self-lobotomy, basically. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your problem with that? Well, my problem with that is that um, I'd worked on this ward and because I'd worked on this ward, I had had these bad experiences and I thought, well, I should change um, some of the problems that I was having. So I filled in feedback forms. I joined a junior doctor ac activist group all because of these experiences. So I think even though I well, had stressful experiences, it kind of made me a better person essentially afterwards because I managed to help society and help the NHS in, in some small way. And what, I mean, in roughly what kind of experiences were they in terms, were they in terms of as a doctor or, you know, what, what way? Yeah, it was as a doctor. So it was the kind of understaffing, um, the, the stresses that the national health service puts upon a junior doctor, which are quite significant at times. Yeah. yeah. And this ward I just thought was particularly a struggle, um, for me. And I thought, well, I should try and work to address it. I should use these emotions that I'm having and channel them in a positive way. Yeah. Um, and back to your question as to what I thought the problem was, I thought that this mindfulness um, experience persuaded us almost to ignore the uh, emotions that we were feeling and kind of basically, as you said, just kind of shun them away and not think about them again. Now, and that comes through that so comes through quite strongly in the video we played, actually, as well. I mean, it seemed to be all about trying to get back to the peaceful still water. Um, so that you can see even through the water and you might not see things you don't like there, but you have to accept them. Um, and that's just how it is. Um, there's no question of, okay, you see things you don't like, let's get rid of it. Let's, let's improve the situation here. Or, you know, it's a stormy sea. Well, why is it a stormy sea? You know, sometimes what you're saying, I suppose, is there's a point to anger. There's a point to frustration. There's a point to stress. And actually, they are like your immune system in a way. When you're invaded by an infection, you go into an inflammatory state to try and take, you know, deal with the problem at hand. And if you don't have an immune system, then you die of it. And that's what many diseases are, you know, HIV and other, if we're going to go down the medical route, that's in a sense what they are. They're a lack of immune system. They're a lack of a response. Um, is that Definitely. kind of thing what you're saying? Definitely. And I think that's why this course is effective in patients who do struggle to control and regulate their emotions. 
because I think for those people, they don't need to have extra stresses put upon them. They What they need is actually to reduce them as far as possible and to be able to recognize and control their emotions. Yeah. But I think for ordinary day-to-day people, it's part of life, isn't it, to have all of these different emotions and to be able to channel them well, but also to be able to use emotions to better ourselves and society. Yeah, I think there's there's a, there's there's two ways we can look at this, at least in my view, because from from the pro mindfulness camp, I guess what what people would say is, um, you know, the idea isn't to dull you, but it's to raise your subjective awareness of the different of the emotional turbulence that may be within you, so that you can kind of see whatever path you want to take, for uh, you know, and, and and go forward with that. So, for instance, for you, if you're already at a state where you recognise that I'm feeling frustrated. Um, because of the lack of support, you were able to identify that, and then you were able to take action in accordance. Now, for a lot of people, they may not get to that stage because they don't have that 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 sense of okay, what exactly is going on within me. Um, whereas you had that, and you were able to take action. And I think a mindfulness advocate would probably say here, um, we're not saying don't take action, and we're not saying um, don't feel those emotions. We're saying recognize them and be in the moment <laughs> yeah right? so that you can do the next step and is your contention a that actually they don't really say that or is it b that they present mindfulness as like the end goal without really talking about what comes next or c none of the above i think it's um b yeah. <laughs> i think <laughs> it's the fact that there's no other kind of training or any other way of improving oneself apart from to think about everything in the present moment in a non-judgmental way. Mm. And as an individual, I think that's fine. But when this is spread out to a whole society, you kind of think, well, who are they trying to turn society into? Is every individual meant to become some kind of lobotomized person without any drive or desire to actually improve things for the better? And I think the other issue is that it makes all problems in society seem like they are individual problems rather than they're societal problems. So I think mindfulness gives the message that stress is something that we impose on ourselves and we are the people that have to deal with them. Um, and we do have to deal with them, but we also live in an unjust and unequal system at times. Many ordinary workers kind of live paycheck to paycheck. They have a lot of stresses in their life. And I think telling them the solution is simply to um, do this mindfulness practice. Essentially, get better at de- essentially get better at dealing with stress. Yes, rather, rather, rather than, than rather than remove the stressors or 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 create systems to improve um, and remove the injustice. Actually, you should just learn better to um, lie down and take it effectively. Exactly. Yeah, which is which is nuts because in our in our world today, you know, even just in the Western world, let alone places that are being bombed and war torn, etc. But even in the Western world, we have you know family breaks to break down generation after generation. We have increasing inequality. Um, people, your money goes much less far. Uh, your wages are stagnating. Cost of living is increasing. People don't have religion like they used to, so they don't have a sense of meaning or purpose. You have all these things that are going on. Um, very difficult things for a lot of people. And I think you're right in that the cultural message, the big cultural thing at the moment is is mindfulness in terms of 
spirituality. Because it's interesting, 10, 15 years ago, new atheism was all the rage, and the very idea of being spiritual was like uh, anathema, and it was all about not being, it was all about being non-spiritual and being scientific. I think people rebelled against that, and that would seem to be a very unnatural way of living, so people want some kind of spirituality, and mindfulness has almost like filled that niche in the market. And as, as far as I'm aware, it's kind of the only thing that really sells itself as this is the answer uh, in kind of our secular society. Um, so while mindfulness advocates may be, you know, it, maybe, maybe a particular advocate while being pressed probably wouldn't say, well, this is the overall answer. The stress that's laid upon it and the way it's presented kind of is, in my view, did, was that reflected in the course at all? I think it was. And I don't think it's a conscious thing either. Like, I don't think the instructor was thinking, oh, this is like some kind of grand conspiracy in order to numb every single person. Yeah. But I think that's the impact it's had, particularly given the fact that it's been rolled out to companies and corporations. And so all the workers have this, you know, compulsory mandatory mindfulness training. School children have mindfulness uh, training. And all the while, you kind of think, well, these CEOs like earn billions of pounds, eight billionaires have as much wealth as half the world's population. And instead of them thinking, well, let's try and equalize society, what they're actually saying is, let's try and make our workers be able to deal with the stresses that we inflict upon them in a better way. Mm. And that's just a really wrong way of dealing with it, in my opinion. The yeah. idea of the idea of like, like teaching children how to... Uh basically lie down and take it <laughs> it's just i mean i i can see from one ex from one extent you know children should learn to regulate their emotions it's actually a very important thing and a part of growing up but i can't imagine a child learning how to regulate their emotions through focusing on how to munch on a raisin or walking in a straight line quietly i mean emotional regulation for children actually happens through social interaction and mimicry of good role models and it's the lack of those role models, which is why children do not learn uh, appropriate uh, emotional regulation. And secure attachments as well. And, and secure attachments, absolutely. So they feel like you know they have a, a solid base in their life from which to explore the rest of the world. And on the one hand, many policies are promoted in society which um, help effectively to diminish the um, social foundation of the human family. While the other side, we're having promotion of mindfulness as some form of remedy for children to now learn how to emotionally regulate themselves. That's quite sinister. Yeah. I mean, how, how did that then um, develop in your course? Like, did you, do, what, how did your perspective, did it slowly change or was there kind of a moment when you were like, this is nuts or like, how did it develop? So I think the, the first point was the walking meditation. So I think that rang some alarm bells in my mind where I thought, well, I'm being told not to even address the root causes of, of the problem that I'm facing. Yeah. And I kind of, as an analogy, I kind of thought, well, if, if a patient that I'm treating has um, a heart attack, say, then giving them some painkillers is a solution, but it's not the solution that's going to ultimately solve their problem. What they need is basically to unblock their arteries or something of that kind, mm. you know. And I and I think that that's what mindfulness was promoting. Okay, so we've been talking uh, about how mindfulness is being used by corporations and some um, hyper-capitalist companies uh, to kind of, I don't know, 
calm their employees down and stop them from rebelling. Um, you wrote, you, you didn't write a book on this, but I think you read a book on this called uh, Mindfulness. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the book and the author? Yeah, so this is a book called McMindfulness by uh, a professor of management in America whose name is Ronald Purser. And he essentially writes a, a debunking book. So he saw this uh, concept of mindfulness and how it's been rolled out across the whole population of America mm -hmm. and studied it in quite a lot of depth uh, and came to some quite startling and interesting conclusions about, uh, firstly, the scientific evidence or lack thereof, Mm. Um, of mindfulness and potential reasons why it's been incorporated so widely into American life. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Should we, uh, I've got a clip of him, so why don't we just uh, yeah. watch that? And I noticed uh, around 2010, uh, a lot of companies, especially around Silicon Valley, uh, started jumping on the bandwagon, uh, bringing mindfulness programs uh, into into their uh, firms, into their companies. Um, and I've done a lot of management consulting in my day, and uh, I know how fads uh, come and go, and basically how some of these programs are used to uh, basically pacify workers, uh, to try to uh, uh, distill uh, dissent, uh, suppress uh, worker uh, dissent, and put all the, the burden back onto employees to uh, adjust and cope with uh, basically what amounts to very toxic uh, corporate culture. So that was partly the reason. The other reason is I was sort of stunned by how rapidly this so-called mindfulness revolution took off because, you know, at one time, uh, as Buddhism made itself uh, uh, popular in the West, it was, it was a countercultural uh, anti-establishment uh, sort of uh, hippie-ish uh, uh, movement back when Zen was popular in the day. So when it morphed into uh, a $1.5 billion uh, industry, that, that really got my attention. And I, I started to take a step back and, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, take a look at what was actually going on uh, with this so-called movement. And uh, became more and more suspicious and more concerned in terms of how uh, what was uh, a spiritual practice uh, became co-opted and uh, basically uh, commodified and instrumentalized uh, to basically uh, serve corporate interest and uh, basically in other settings, for example, even the U.S. military, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Marines have been training uh, soldiers uh, in some shape or form of mindfulness. So that really uh, sparked my uh, interest and concern. So, I mean, what did you, what, what did he overall say in that book? Um, if you can condense a, a huge book into about three, maybe four sentences. And um, <laughs> did you agree with his thesis? So his, um, his book essentially talked about how mindfulness has become all the rage in uh, modern society. And it's been kind of endorsed by people like monks, people like neuroscientists, CEOs of big companies. And it's been used in the military. It's been used across schools and governments. And there's a lot of positive coverage about it. And Purser 
goes right to the heart of the the issues surrounding it and debunks a lot of the myths um, about this so-called mindfulness revolution. Um, so he says that unlike what most people think, mindfulness is not the kind of cure-all um, practice that's going to revolutionize or change the world. And part of it is the fact that the uh, stress that people um, that people try and alleviate through mindfulness um, is deemed to be self-imposed by the mindfulness movement, mm. um, as we talked about previously. And, um, and part of it is also looking quite deeply into the scientific evidence behind mindfulness and figuring out why it's, it's uh, disproportionately been um, hyped up. Yeah, I think we'll come on to that in a minute. Um... Darapajan, anything you want to kind of say on that, on, on its social role of mindfulness? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I remember reading your article that you've written, um, Demir, and, you know, you talk about Richard Branson being a big advocate of mindfulness. Um, this is a chap who is a habitual tax evader and recently changed. To, is, he, is he a non-dom in the UK? I can't remember. I think he might be a non-dom. We'll have to check. He doesn't pay any tax. Um, you know, he avoids paying tax and takes a lot of public. He, he would like public money to bail out recently during the COVID crisis, his train engines, his Thomas the Tank engines. And, um, you know, on the one hand, doesn't pay any tax properly to the, the British economy, at least. Then he wants a bailout from the British economy when his industry goes down. And on the side, with his very understaffed trains, He's trying to basically push mindfulness as a solution for society to take on board. Um, and that's a great example of a kind of, uh, you know, if he wanted to make the world a better place, a good place to start would be would be to pay his taxes <laughs> at appropriate levels so that, you know, people could have enough currency and float to actually help them with the problems and the welfare issues that they're facing. Yeah, and, and to be clear, we don't—we're not saying he's kind of illegally dodging tax, but I think him and like, uh, like all kind of. No, he's not. It's, it's legal. It's it's you know it's legal in you know, but um, but that's part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, because the same people who own these companies ultimately really own the the governments and have undue influence over them, and as you say, if people wanted to kind of really contribute, then they would uh, pay the ethical amount of tax rather than the bare minimum, uh, you know, by having a bunch of shell companies and moving money around. Um, yeah. So I think I mean, the, 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 a good, you know, the Quran is um, pretty explicit in one of its last chapters upon the absolute necessity to pay uh, what it called legal arms. Hmm. So that is that chapter is all about the the fundamental importance of paying your the legal arms, the legal dues, the legal charities, what we would call tax hmm. um, in society, and the absolute. Um, harm it can wreck upon a society if, if a person chooses not to do so. And when you have these large corporations that have legal loopholes to, loopholes to avoid tax legally, um, basically because they have uh, lobbied MPs, lobbied parliamentarians to pass laws um, which uh, particularly benefit them, and this is seen massively in the United States, almost to a greater degree, I'd say, than in the UK, um, I watched a really interesting clip recently about uh, Hillary Clinton's and Donald Trump's uh, one of their uh, debates that they had. This is obviously four years ago, 
uh, in which Hillary Clinton points out that Trump uh, probably doesn't pay any tax. And very recently, there's been the re revelation of uh, Trump paying, I think, 750 pounds of tax in, in one year. And, um, you know, Donald Trump turned around in that debate uh, on this particular clip I saw and said to Hillary Clinton, well, I do know differently to all of your donors. All of your donors don't pay any tax. Mm -hmm. I don't pay any tax. In fact, they pay less tax than even I do. So if you wanted to change it, you should have changed it in legislation when you were actually a senator. Uh, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, but he had a good point. <laughs> in his debate with Biden just uh, the other day, Biden attacked him on only having paid $750 of tax. And Trump said, well, you've been in government 47 years, and this is the law, and you've allowed me to do it. <laughs> on a bad comeback. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's one big party and you're not invited, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, I mean, that's that's. I think I think it's you know it's good to speak in a kind of you know theoretical frameworks hmm. about our problems with issues, but it's sometimes nice to kind of put your finger on a point and an issue. And I think this is a good example when you have people who are ex ex exorbitantly wealthy, so wealthy that if you worked and got a million pounds every day for the next thirty thousand years, you would just about manage to get to accrue mm. the same amount. And they're kind of pushing ideas of, well, you need to be able mm. to deal with the stresses I'm putting on you a bit better. That's quite, uh, it stings. Yeah, it makes you think it's fulfilling a social role. And if, if the people in charge of a broken slash breaking society are pushing it, then is it part of the problem rather part of the solution? And has it been hijacked in the same way, you know, religion as a whole has been hijacked in many instances uh, in, in very sinister ways. Uh, and, it, and it's no longer, and it's divorced from its kind of original intention. Has mindfulness kind of been extracted and taken and then presented in a way and used in a way which isn't really reflective of its provenance? I think it's an extension of uh, how religion itself has been uh, commodified and privatized over the last couple of centuries. So, in, you know, initially a couple of centuries ago, religion was very much a collective um, kind of kind of thing it was very much a fabric of society mm. and it now has been individualized so it's kind of a taboo subject to talk about it's not very uh the churches are not very well attended it's all about one's individual spirituality so it's that's fine you can have religion but don't try and push it on anybody don't try and uh spread it or talk about it or have any kind of community get together i think it's perhaps not that extreme but I think it's more of an individual thing in society rather than a, a societal um, thing. Well, well, I mean, France has gone to a far greater extent in that direction than the UK has. Mm. Um, but even in the UK, I think there's a there's an attitude of um, uh, that religion is an oddity and only weird people do it. And if you do it, <laughs> you know, if you do it, it's bad news for us. <laughs> if you do it, you better be an you be you like you're ethnic. Like you're a bit ethnic, aren't you? <laughs> oh, he's a bit ethnic. He is. He's uh, he he's in, he's doing his prayers. He's doing his prayers. He's a good boy. But you know, it's like um, it, it does give that impression that if you're doing it, it's because you were brought up with it, and because you know, if you're brown, then that's acceptable because you were brought up with it because you're from a you're from a <laughs> and poor, you're tolerated because people a are poor nation yeah. where they still need to believe in God to uh, get by in life in terms of their stresses. And, and, you know, if you're English and you're religious, I think they're actually vilified much more, yeah. actually, in society. Because it's like, what's wrong with you? Like, you're going to be one of us. And, you know, why do you need religion anymore? Um, and, and I think it's funny that 
they're introducing aspects of the kind of beginnings of introspection, which is the beginnings of a religious mindset at the end of the day, mm. back into their society, obviously because there's a massive need for it. Um, and actually, from a positive sense, you could say that this is actually the first, in a very, as a very tentative step, in a direction of society towards going back towards recognizing the benefits of religious belief and, and spiritual experience. I think when people try to demonize religion, they realize that actually society needs some kind of spirituality. And so what they did instead is uh, to have this vague notion of spirituality that no longer really means anything. It doesn't mean a relationship with God, which is what it used to mean. But now things like um, going to music concerts can be seen as spiritual. Walking can be spiritual experience. Uh, I think the evangelicals okay. are going to have to take some of the blame for that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but basically, spiritual doesn't mean anything. Anybody can be spiritual. Yeah, sunrise. Um, sunrise is spiritual, yeah. apparently. Yeah. A global yeah. ball, ball of hydrogen rising over the horizon. <laughs> yeah, and I think it means that it's a concept whereby uh, unrestrained kind of fulfillments of personal desires is seen as the objective of spirituality. And it's a shame because religion has a very different understanding of what spirituality means. And it's one that can benefit society as a whole rather than just fulfilling one's own desires. So what you're saying is that it's like um, that mindfulness kind of sees introspection as, as a route to obtaining your objectives and your desires more efficiently i think so it can be you can be a more effective and more productive capitalist or you know a better adjusted person to the consumerist society that we live in so yeah. it's actually doing the opposite thing to creating real spirituality it's actually making you more materialistic and more able to deal with the stresses of a materialistic world yeah i mean i don't know if it just i'm not sure i'm not sure personally if it makes you more like that. I think it kind of facilitates whatever is there in the first place and it can help you to become more effective at that because it doesn't give you any kind of moral guidance, right? It doesn't tell you how you should live. It doesn't tell you once you've recognized your impulses, um, you know, you should curtail this one, but channel this one in this way. Uh, it kind of just makes you more aware of them. And I get maybe part of your point actually is if maybe I'm understanding it now, is you're saying it makes you more aware of those impulses and helps you to fulfill them without actually giving you any guidance in kind of how to live. Because now I always like um, going to the Nazis to demonstrate points. I think it's an extremely effective way of talking about things. So like if you, if you kind of did a mindfulness course for Nazis, right, they would become presumably more effective at Nazism. And interesting you mentioned that because that actually happened. Really? really? So yeah, yeah. So Heinrich Himmler, he <laughs> was one of the- setup. <laughs> 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 Yeah, yeah. So Himmler, who was a very, I think, I can't remember if he was the communications propaganda expert or he was something else. He might have been the leader of the SS, actually. Yeah. And what he used to do is venture with him and his Nazi fellow Nazis into kind of forests or into uh, country lodges and conduct mindfulness retreats. So meditative mindfulness retreats before coming out and doing all the awful, horrendous things that they used to do. So he was he was the main architect of the Holocaust. Hmm. So there you go. So it shows really that that mindfulness can be used for good or for evil, and at no point does it even attempt to tell you which it should, which it should be. So, what so you it should has, be more effective at, at, at mm. basically. It's got no moral content, 
and spiritual content in terms of how we define it as a relationship with God or relationship with something beyond, it's almost, it, it doesn't do that. And actually it makes you stress upon looking within, which is kind of the opposite. Um, and, and uh, maybe this is a good time to kind of discuss this origin in Buddhism before we go on to talking about whether it really works. Because, I mean, can you tell us a bit about its relationship with Buddhism and um, also the modern view of Buddhism, whether the modern view of Buddhism is, is correct in our, in our perspective? Yeah, um, so mindfulness um, essentially is derived from a Buddhist uh, path, which is called the path to enlightenment. And there's eight paths within this um, path to enlightenment. So um, I can't remember them all, but um, everything starts with right. So one is right mindfulness. One is right speech, meaning that one should speak it's in the right It's not good mnemonic, is it? It's right, it's right, it's right. <laughs> yeah, like right intention, I think, whereby you have to make sure that all your intentions are pure. Um, right uh, concentration right effort so these kind of things um that give quite a holistic picture into how one should live one's life yeah with morality and the mindfulness is kind of an adjunct to it mm. so it kind of says well you do all these things but you do them in a mindful way and if you connect all of these uh paths together then you ultimately attain salvation um right conduct is another one and that involves no alcohol or drugs interestingly um, and so, did they mention that on the NH on the NHS course? <laughs> no, they didn't. Um, and I think it's interesting because I spoke to some colleagues about it afterwards. I told them about this Buddhist link, and they said it would be really interesting if we had some context as one in one of our sessions. So perhaps in the first session they could tell us where mindfulness actually came from. But there was none of that there. And the problem with this course is that it just takes the right mindfulness aspect, but it ignores all of the other ones. Mm. Um, and that creates a problem because you're divorcing the original Buddhist teaching and in doing so you're making it I think kind of meaningless in a way I don't know if that's a bit harsh mm. but it's it's not fulfilling its original purpose and certainly the Buddhist purpose was a much higher one than what's now happening now uh Demir, did they kind of talk about religion on the course at all they didn't mention religion at all but interestingly they made religious references um, during the mindfulness course. And it was actually the first time they did that when I realized that mindfulness was not something that I liked. Mm. Um, and it was something that is not particularly as uh, harmless as it may seem. So I'll explain. Um, there was a moment during one of our meditations. So we were sat in a lecture theater for this one um, or in a conference room actually, all around in a massive circle and we had just come to the end of a 20 minute meditation, uh, which I was looking forward to completing. Mm. Um, and the instructor said, just wait a second, don't open your eyes yet, I'm gonna read you a poem. And what he read was a poem that I knew already actually, and it was called The Guest House by, by Rumi. Um, have you heard of this poem? Yeah, you sent me the uh, original translation of it once. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Who's, so who's Rumi? Mulana Jalaluddin Rumi, radiallahu anhu. <laughs> I think you know better than me. He was, <laughs> he was an 11th, 11th or 12th century uh, Persian um, poet, but also he was a Muslim saint. So he's a very important figure within Islam. Um, and many regard him as the reformer of that century. Exactly. Or one of the reformers of the century. Yeah, and he, he was an imam, you know, he, he was a scholar, saint. <laughs> was, yeah. And his work is so extensive 
you can read, you can go through all of his his stuff. Um, his Mathnavi. His Mathnavi. It's in the original Persian and in English. And it's so deep. It's deep con- commentaries on the Quran. So, so what happened next? They read the guest house. They read the guest house. And um, this is a poem essentially about the trials of life. And it's about how one must use patience and resolve um, in order to kind of overcome challenges that we face. And it ends, I, I remember the last three lines. So the last three lines go, be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. And that's, at the time I thought, well, that's quite a clear reference to God. So actually what this poem is about is how one can develop spiritual nearness to God after encountering challenges and difficulties. Um, but obviously that's not how it was framed. It was framed more as a mindfulness kind of regulating one's emotions, that kind of thing. Um, How? What do they say? They didn't really comment on it too much, but they said, just look at this, think about this poem, think about how it relates to the meditation we've just done. And you could tell that it was about controlling one's emotions. But those last three lines, I thought, well, who is a guide from beyond? It must be God. And given that Rumi was a, a... prominent Muslim saint, that's who Rumi is referring to. And if this poem is about that, then essentially you're taking it completely out of context and Mm. you're missing the whole original point of the poem. So what I did then is I went and found the original translation of the poem, which interestingly is very different to the commonly quoted form of the guest house. Um, So there's a guy called Coleman Barks who's translated uh, all of Rumi's poems. It's a generous word there, isn't it? Yeah, so he's translated them from, not from Persian to English, but from English to English. So an old English translation to a modern contemporary English translation, which fits the sensibilities of uh, the modern society. So one thing he does is he takes out all references to prophets apart from Jesus and I think the prophet Joseph, peace be upon them. Mm. Um, because they're not as widely known in the Western world. And so he tries to frame poems of Rumi, which are very beautiful, in a way that kind of appeals to modern Western people. And they're still really beautiful, actually. Um, But it's a bit dishonest, and nobody actually knows this. Mm. Because Um, he's like the best-selling poet in America, isn't he, Rumi? Via Common Barks. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, And... The actual original last three lines of that poem, where I said, you know, each has been sent from a guide to beyond, is actually not even part of the poem. It's actually a prayer. So the prayer says, oh, my Lord, give me thanks for that which I receive and don't let me feel any regret if it shall pass away. So it's a uh, that's a rough translation. But it's a prayer about how one can improve oneself after trials. Yeah. Uh, And it's just interesting. Yeah, I I was actually... um... I was actually, because I remember you kind of said that this was, this was it, and um, they, they spoke about this, and then I, I asked for that translation as well after that, and I was surprised by just how dishonest that translation was. I mean, Can we bring it up? Um, yeah, but, it, well, the thing is, uh, no, because it's actually about three pages. Like, the, the poem, which was, like, I don't know, like, 12 lines, which is used in the NHS course, is basically, like, three, I mean, it was about three pages, I think, roughly, two or three pages, mm-hmm. Um, from Rumi's original poetry. So it's gonna, it'll take a while to go through. It was really long. 
And it was all very spiritual and about how you have to suffer through the trials of life. Like he even talks about the prophet um, Job and, you know, famously suffered a lot and was very patient and steadfast. Um, and then gave prayers at the end in terms of, you know, how you turn to God in these situations. So although I kind of, I knew this about how people translate Rumi, even I was actually shocked as to, like, this wasn't even, it's not like it was half mindfulness, half spirituality. It was basically all pure religion spirituality, which was then presented in the sense of you have to have a non-judgmental awareness of pulses. Completely. <laughs> you know, and, and that's yeah. it, which is just, um, you know, really it's cancelling Rumi. I feel like the NHS is cancelling Rumi. <laughs> and he was like, they're ethnic. So, not a good look. No, man. On the Wikipedia page of Rumi, you can find one of his quotes. And one of his quotes says, I've, I've actually got it up on my Wikipedia page. It says, I am the servant of the Quran as long as I have life. I am the dust on the path of Muhammad, the chosen one. If anyone quotes anything except this from my sayings, I am quit of him and outraged by these words. Which is almost like a prophecy that people would in future use his writings in a way that's completely away from what its original Islamic teachings and purpose was. Mm. And, and that's a good encapsulation of actually of the whole issue, isn't it? It's the extracting of an originally like an, a religious philosophy which is taken and warped and then presented as this is what you need in life. Whereas actually the original thing was what satisfied people's um, you know, needs and really is what we need today. Because what people need today is not just a, a non-judgmental awareness of their uh, emotional turmoil. It's, um, it's you know, that in terms of basic self-reflection, but also they need to be kind of, there needs to be a sense of how should I actually live my life? What is the moral conduct that I should engage in? And ultimately, much more than that is how can I have a relationship with something beyond, i.e. God, which is what Buddha came and spoke about. It's what Confucius came and spoke about. He said, you know, um, he who offends heaven has no one to whom he can pray. And heaven is, is a word used for God in that context, because, you know, you're praying, you don't pray to just a place, you pray to a person. Uh, Lao Tzu, obviously, quite, quite explicitly, he spoke about God. So all the Eastern sages that are today taken as well, you know, um, you know these are the sources of enlightenment spoke about God in pretty much the same way as the Israelite prophets spoke about it. When you look mm -hmm. at the Native Americans, they have, you know, Dego Anida and other uh, spiritual sages who spoke, you know, in similar terms. Socrates, as, you know, Brother Dahir, you spoke about in the previous episode, uh, spoke about his divine sign from God and he, fought, and he taught against the kind of uh, the polytheism of the Athenians and spoke in favor of one God. His, uh, his main disciple, Antisthenes, also took this on. So actually around the world, you have this, um, you know, this panoply of spiritual teachers of old saying that there is one God, there is God and enlightenment is reaching him. Whereas today, people talk about enlightenment, I think, in a really annoying way, which is that it's just, you know, like, like people are like not sure what it is, but they've heard that people in the East are enlightened and they think kind of going on a mindfulness retreat is how to become enlightened. So what do you think enlightenment is? Like, hmm? <laughs> you know, it's not going to... What what could it possibly be if it's just completely purely introspective? Is it just like you get a really deep awareness that you're the product of blind evolutionary forces and have ultimately a meaningless life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm enlightened. Pretty depressing. <laughs> like surely enlightenment has to be something more. And all these people in the past have spoken about enlightenment in terms of spiritual enlightenment and achieving union with God, your creator. Yeah. I mean, Buddha said very clearly that uh, 
you know, if you ask to go how to, if you ask somebody what are the directions to get to a particular place in the town, then the person to ask is the person who is from that town. And uh, he explained further that that's a reference to the fact that if you want to know how to get to God, you have to go to the one who has come from God. Um, and who has been appointed by God, who has been brought up in the lap of God, um, and who knows God intimately. And he was referring to himself. Mm. Yeah, he's basically being talked about as being commissioned as a as a, as a prof- prophetic figure, yeah, you know, as a prophet or however you'd call yeah. it. And if we're talking about kind of dealing with the trials of life, it's actually the prophets of God who have dealt with those things the best. So a whole religious history can tell you that the prophets were people who suffered the most within the whole of human history. And yet they were also the ones that were the leaders and that guided their followers and told them not to worry, not to lose heart. Um, and that prayer was, was the solution. And so they had in a way the best mental health, um, if you can call it that, <laughs> even though they suffered the greatest. to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> even though they suffered the greatest. And so in a way, I think they are your models. Like they are the role models that we need to follow. Um, and if mindfulness can be used as a gateway kind of to approach those figures, then that's all well and good. But at the moment, I don't think that's what's, what's happening. I think that they're using religious figures without actually quoting that these are from religious people. So Demira, you're, you're, you're a prayerful fellow. I know you quite well. Um, how, (laughs) how did, how did your, um, experiences on, you, you know, using meditation, Compare with or potentially augment prayer, like, can you reflect upon these two, you know, something which you've learned? And obviously, I don't think you're claiming to be an expert in meditation. You went on a course and you did it, did it somewhat, but I think it's enough to get a good sense of it. How does that compare to kind of your, your experience with prayer? I think one interesting thing is actually comparing the purposes, so why I pray compared to why I would conduct mindfulness meditation. Um, so the reason to do mindfulness meditation is to improve myself to be able to deal with emotions better. Um, And that's really it. So it's a personal kind of endeavor and a personal goal. Whereas with religion and with prayer, it's about something far greater than just yourself. It's actually about building a relationship with a living God. And not just that, but developing a relationship out of love. And from that love of God, ultimately, one ends up loving the creation or having compassion for God's creation as well. Mm. Uh, because if you, if you love the painter, you also love the paintings as it were. Mm. And so in that way, prayer, I think helps a person to become righteous and helps a person to improve society for the better rather than just de-stressing on an individual level. What do you mean by righteous? Um, I mean, all, basically all of the things that the, the Buddhist uh, enlightenment path were teaching. So abstaining from lying, uh, abstaining from uh, kind of impure intentions and impure thoughts, um, trying to treat others with compassion and with um, goodness. It's kind of that. And I think it's a difficult thing to do. And I think it requires effort and it requires a real focus that mindfulness does not provide or even aim to provide mm. um, i mean it's interesting a lot of those statements they kind of like remove impure thoughts or bad intentions these verses these phrases have no uh, meaningful content outside of a religious framework which tells you do what they? to do 
I mean, what is impure? Is impure just what that society tells you is impure? When in a hundred years, a different society would give you a different set of values by which to judge impurity. Um, and, and I feel that to some extent, therefore, um, that, that is another proof that actually Buddhism has a religious and a, and a kind of, has a, has a theistic and a, and a grounding and a belief in God, um, which I hope and I think that people are moving back towards um, as, uh, and they will, you know, eventually. I think like moving on, like as an extension to that, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who is the founder of Islam, he, he did a number of revolutionary things throughout his life. And one of them, a striking thing, is he essentially abolished slavery. And he made the, um, you know, black slaves be the leaders of, of, of Islam and be remembered for, you know, centuries to come, even mm. to this day. Mm. And I think that's something that only religion can do. I think only religion can change the prevailing situation within a society. And as you said, Dahirpai, uh, I think um, mindfulness and other forms of secular non-religious spirituality only work with what is in that society at the time. And the impure thoughts are only what's impure in the society at the time, but they don't actually work to objectively improve society for the better on a, on a deeper level. Is that because they don't draw from an authority which is greater than that of society? I think that's what it is. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I watched a Russell Brand. I think do we have the Russell Brand clip yeah, ready because yeah. because he talked about prayer, um, and he's a really great figure because you know he's a person who went from being a drug addict. Um, he would be the first to say that about himself, um, and he does regularly on his podcasts. He talks about his struggles with drugs. Talks about his struggles with addiction. And he talks about how he moved towards a more spiritual path. And now he does something very interesting. He does something completely, I, I can't see anybody else in society other than, you know, religious folk in a sense or religious communities doing this. Certainly not anybody from a Western background on his own. He's the only one um, where he's trying to actually draw people to a belief in God. And he's doing so explicitly despite the fact that society regards it as a as an anathema as something that is you know uh, a, a, something of a bygone era but you know you read the comments on his videos you see the comments on his facebook posts and you recognize that actually there are an awful lot of people who are craving what he is talking about and he, he does a really good clip but do we have it ready yeah yeah and i was just gonna say he's got the star power to basically bring a whole load of other celebrities with him because uh, he, if you, if you listen to his podcast, he's got a great podcast. He just he brings in these celebrities and then just like hammers. It's a bit of a strong word, but he kind of does hammer them about about their belief in God and spirituality and religion in a really good and a funny way. Because he's such a talented guy in that way. Uh, but he's like super explicit, which is which is quite rare. Uh, but let's uh, let's watch this uh, this clip from your consciousness. So I do like very simple prayers, many of which have come from 12 step programs, but 12 steps themselves, whilst initially applied to simple things like substance addiction, ultimately become about relinquishing your behavior, relinquishing the way that you regard yourself, relinquishing ultimately your ego. Now, of course, anyone with the eyes can see or without eyes can hear that I've got an ego, but what I don't have is the kind of entrenched attachment and partiality and myself and own identity that I used to have, though while I, I am uh, sure you are very much still in the throes of the tumult of my inner life through prayer through meditation 
I have systems of navigation to get beyond it. My prayer <clears throat> is not for, hey, can I have a new bike? Can I be more powerful? Although I often feel those kind of feelings. My prayer is to be made ready, to be made ready. I've spoken to many great people, great spirits, great souls on this subject, and they have taught me that our role in our psychic life, the life of the psyche, the inner life, is to become prepared, not to exert the will, because the will is likely the agent of the ego, certainly in the unawakened. Of course, you might need will. Perhaps one day it will fall upon us, the great mission, the great purpose, and we will have to sacrifice, dedicate our lives to something noble and grand. But if that comes to me, via the ego, then it will not be a true purpose. So my prayer is, God, make me ready, awaken me, creator. And when I say God, I mean the absolute consciousness, the unified field from which all matter and non-matter and dark matter and dark energy comes. This point of emission, this singularity, not that we are progressing to, but the singularity from which we came, this oneness, this point of oneness that expanded into allness, allness in every direction without limit. Here in the physical material world, there is only limitation through rationalism, through arithmetic and algebra of continual analysis and understanding, but beyond, behind, beneath, around, there is the limitless through meditation. So I think, uh, I think we'll pause it there. Sorry for the odd thumbnail there to end it on. Um, he certainly has a way with words, and uh, he was basically saying there that something actually very profound, which is that he wants to be ready to accept his purpose in life when it comes to him and wants to make sure that he cleans himself to a degree that he doesn't fool himself into thinking something's his purpose when it's actually from his ego. So to win an Oscar or something like that, you know. Yeah, by God, example. I just wish he would read the philosophy of the teachings of Islam. Mm. I just wish he would read that book. <laughs> yeah, by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. We'll put a link I mean, in the it's description the below. Most, it's the most, like, if he reads that, I swear to God, he will literally fall off his chair like being like oh my god i've actually found the truth the ultimate truth i think he will mm. because you can't help but do it when you read that book and it's very moving listening to him isn't it yeah because he's very sincere and in his own self he's a he's a he's a shining demonstration of the power of these spiritual practices in his own kind of reformation which has literally been before everyone's eyes um and I want to um, sound something out with you guys um, as we're coming towards the end here, which is uh, not, it's not a criticism of him because he's obviously gone so far and he's done so well. Uh, not um, anyone's kind of judge him, but I guess from my perspective, um, he's, he's done so much, but he sort of, he does somewhat still divorce religious teachings from the real substance of religion in a way, because my answer, my, my question, I guess would be is like, you recognize the great truths of religion and spirituality and you pray and you do these things, but ultimately the people who brought this to us were the prophets and the prophets told us to follow their path. Um, and in particular, for instance, the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was the only prophet, the only great spiritual teacher to say that this is my teaching for all people for all time. And if you want to achieve enlightenment and oneness with that, with the absolute, uh, as-samad, which is basically the Arabic word for the absolute, that one fundamental thing then follow me and then God will love you. That's literally a direct quote from the Quran. Yeah. So if you would love Allah, follow me, then will Allah love you and forgive you your sins. Yeah. 
So people, there aren't that many other people like Russell Brand, but there are sort of shadows of him in a way of something of a general spiritual movement uh, happening in the West, recognizing the value of religion. But it generally doesn't really want to, to still, it still doesn't want to um, engage with the real content of religion and the realities of religion, which is that it is a belief system which says, here is the evidence for these beliefs. We claim these beliefs are true. And if you follow the path, this path, you will achieve the enlightenment which you seek. Instead, there's a bit of a sense of um, we can take what we like from our contemporary perspective um, and in, in a slightly haphazard way um, while not fully embracing it. And I imagine it's because actually religion has such a bad name and so many religious people who have the name of religion do so many bad things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what's, uh, Demir, I mean, what's your perspective on that? I think that's right. And I think the other thing is people feel like there's so many religions. How do we ascertain which is the right one? And I think in that context, Islam has quite a good solution because it, one of its fundamental, it's a very opening chapter of the Quran called Surah Al-Fatiha is a chapter which is essentially a prayer for all of mankind to do. And it's a very, it's neutral in the sense that it doesn't pray to a specific um religion or it doesn't say um you know the prophet muhammad is 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 the true prophet of god or anything like that it's a very all-encompassing prayer mm. um that appeals to inherently human nature so it appeals to uh, the three forces that drive us which is fear reward and love and it says look you have to um worship god firstly because there might be an afterlife and you might get you know, that if, if that's the case and God exists, then you want to be on the right side. Mm. Um, and it also appeals to the reward aspect that, that God can help you. Um, God can answer your prayers. That's in the attribute of Arahim, which means the merciful. Um, and also the final stage is appealing to love, um, which, which is the ultimate goal of Islam, to attain a true connection and love with God. And what I would say, there's a good article on rationalreligion.co.uk about this, about um, this prayer and how one can use this prayer in order to truly develop a, a relationship with God and to try this prayer um, and see where it takes you. You know, maybe it won't take you to Islam, maybe it will take you somewhere else, but that's for the individual to decide based on based on this kind of all-encompassing prayer. I, yeah. I would say that... Can, I, would can, say I, can that... I just say it was written by Hamad Khan, who's a fantastic writer of ours, so go to rationalreligion.co.uk and you'll find that article there. I, I would say that the order that you've presented it in, I would disagree with. I would say it presents love first, then it presents reward, and then it presents fear. Mm. Almost like in the toe saying, well, if you don't respond to love and reward, then you might respond <laughs> to fear. Because it begins with Rabbul Alameen, which means the, yeah. the developer, originator, the, your source. This is your source. God is your source. Okay, mm -hmm. this is the one who's calling you. And then it says Ar-Rahman, the one who's given you all the bounties of life without you asking for them, and the one who rewards you when you when you seek to do a good action. And then Malik Yomadin comes in the Torah, master of the day of judgment. And I'd say another thing that he Russell Brand talks about, and, and you made such a great point there about how it doesn't actually make explicit reference of any one particular religious leader. It says, Guide us in the straight path the path of those on whom you have bestowed your blessings. It doesn't say who they are. It leaves it to God. It says, whoever you have bestowed your blessings on, let that be the people that we emulate and we follow and in whose footsteps we achieve success. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention, 
is the Russell Brand, he, you know, he talks a lot about in that video about effort and about making a focus change. And there are two things I want to highlight. One is the difference between prayer and meditation, um, especially encapsulated in mindfulness. We've talked a lot about how mindfulness is a kind of a mechanism to um, effectively placate the stresses and the anxieties that may be entirely normal and natural responses to the highly commercialized, capitalistic, material, um, spiritually empty and meaningless lives that a lot of people live. Forgive me for saying so. Um, and that's a that should be a completely normal response that we have a kind of ache in our soul for something greater. Instead, mindfulness is kind of teaching us to shut it up, keep it placated, and get on with going to next and uh, you know TK Maxx. Um, you know, so but prayer is actually he talks about it as a kind of transformative power because what you're effectively doing in prayer is you're saying you're seeking to actually take your you, what you are what you don't like about yourself and transform it and change yourself into something better. So while mindfulness is about non-judgmental uh, recognition of your stresses to kind of eliminate them, prayer is about judgmental elimination <laughs> of your own weaknesses. But this is where one thing I would say, and sorry for going on a lecture, but this is one thing I would say, I haven't watched, I have watched all of what Russell Brand says, but he says so much on prayer. I may have missed where he says this in another video. So to forgive me if I have mischaracterized him, one thing he talks about is how one should exert focused attention and to try and seek God to, you know, to bring about that change and to purify oneself so that one may be ready to take upon oneself the journey and the purpose of life. The thing I would say is that the Quran and the Surah Fatiha, it recognizes at the very outset what the purpose of life is. It says, Thee alone do we worship. After recognizing the attributes of God as Rabb Rahman, Rahim, and Malik, the provider, the sustainer, developer, the one who bestows without asking, the one who rewards you, and then the ultimately the one to whom you will return. After recognizing that, it creates this cry, which is, Thee alone do we worship. And then the very next words are an acknowledgement that human beings will never be able to worship God on their own. It says, And thee alone do we implore for help in this task of worshiping you. And so while Russell Brand talked about prayer, there is a kind of thing that we achieve. The Quran talks about prayer as a complete recognition of your own inability to actually change yourself. And that is a fundamental higher level, I personally think, of recognizing humanity and recognizing that, yes, we are seeking to strive and to seek God, but we can never get there unless God actually comes to us. And that, I think, is the crux. And that's why the Quran says at the beginning of the chapter, the believers, Surah Al-Mu'minun, it says, successful indeed, al-mu'minun, you know, who, who are humble in their prayers. Successful indeed are the believers who are humble in their prayers. That's the first quality, which is that they stand in prayer, recognizing their own inability to achieve anything, to uh, attain any change in themselves, and to even reach God. And that's why they then call God to bring about that change on them. And people may think you're exaggerating in terms of achieve anything, but I always find it amazing just that our hearts beat because we don't really understand how that happens. They just have these cardiac myocytes which just keep going and you know where that comes from and what's really happening there, how the universe keeps on existing moment after moment is fundamentally a mystery. And 
if you analyze it philosophically, I think, and I think we'd agree on this, kind of leads you back to one force, one absolute, which is which is continuing the universe's existence and continuing our hearts beating. Um, and Brother Thayer, I think there would be, I, I fully agree with, I think you said you've explained it very eloquently. I'm not sure Russell Brand would disagree with that because he comes from, part of things he talks about is 12 steps programs, like Alcoholics I don't, Anonymous. I don't or, think... I don't think he would disagree with any of that. Um, and I wasn't, and that's why I did preface what I said, but I just wanted to uh, use that. him, use him as a, using this, using him as an, as a soundboard to sound out that concept um, against which to sound out that concept. No, but I think, I think it's completely right to mention that because, but I think that's part of where he comes from because in, for instance, Alcoholics Anonymous and I assume in Narcotics Anonymous and 12, 12 step programs generally, part of the opening declarations, you basically say, well, I'm, I am powerless to kind of change myself and I rely on God to do that. And it's like really stark. And I think it was uh, inspired by Jung um, uh, originally anyway. So it has like really strong spiritual type foundations and there's that, there is that recognition in it. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a very something very worthwhile pointing out, um, brother. The mayor, anything that you wanted to to to, to mention to, to wrap things up? No, I mean, I, I found mindfulness a very interesting experience. I've also interestingly been to one of those twelve step um, alcohol programs. Have you? Uh, I've never felt the need. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> Just to to clarify, I went as a guest. <laughs> 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 yeah and i think it's interesting like russell brand i think draws upon that quite a lot in order to uh then make the step to actively pray yeah and um well, what what happened at, what, how did you find the toss program really interesting actually and i think it's so useful better for people better i think so uh in many ways than, because, the, than the mindfulness course yeah because I think it's the focus is more on prayer, more on um, looking externally and finding support from a higher power. Um, and I think in Russell Brand's case, actually this 12-step program, which was really effective for him, then provided a gateway for him to then go on to prayer and meaningfully try and change his life and improve his moral character and all of these things. Which he has done considerably. I think everybody would recognize that. I remember being... I remember like thinking about Russell Brand and then like I used to be disgusted by him actually. Like because he was basically like uh, it's a horrible thing to say, but I really didn't like him as a character. When I saw him on TV, I'd change the channel because I felt kind of like this is a person who's trying to sully me in some way. Um but now he comes on and I'm addicted to watching a lot a ray of his of light, videos. yeah. Now now he is a ray of light in, on YouTube. You know, you watch his videos and it, it sometimes moves you to almost tears that this person has made such a a wonderful transformation in his life. Yeah. And there is something you mentioned there about the difference. Uh, I, I think it's just worth, it's my own kind of musing. It's just a very small thing at the end from my own minuscule experience of meditation, which is that I, I constantly wanted to go into prayer and yet meditation was telling me to empty my mind. Um, I think a lot of meditators, their dirty secret is that it's actually really difficult to empty your mind. It's pretty much impossible to empty your mind. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. So like you, you're constantly struggling to do that. Um, and I find it interesting that Islam and I think religions generally don't really teach you to do that much. Uh, like mindfulness, I think in its, in its origin, even in Buddhism is a sense of, it's basically for impulse control and for inner clarity so that you can control impulses so that you don't do wrong things. And that's you, you have a sense of clarity, but as a premise before action, 
But in terms of uh, as an actual spiritual practice, what Islam teaches, for instance, is constant prayer. Yeah. Right? The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, gave us prayers to do when you're walking up a hill. You know, you say, I think Allah, Akbar, Allah, Allah is the greatest. So you don't get a sense of I'm going up and I'm ascending in life. You know, when you're going down, is it subhanAllah you're supposed to say? Yeah, you say subhanAllah, holy is Allah. Yeah, so, you know, God cover up all defects. And literally for everything, there's the, every action yeah. in Islam, you have a prayer. So if you're a really good Muslim, you learn these and you're constantly doing these things. And everything in the world around you then becomes a source of remembering God. And God yeah. says in the Quran, um, you know, verily in the remembrance of Allah, do hearts truly find rest and comfort? Yeah. So Islam has a very different perspective to kind of modern uh, meditation, meditative movements, which is that it's not about emptying your mind. It's about filling it and filling yeah, with it with God. which is good and with God ultimately. Uh, yeah. Because it's, you have to have, when you have all these harmful impulses coming up, a vacuum isn't really going to solve the problem. It's just going to suck them in, ultimately. You I was have exactly to pose them with a, with, a, with, exactly. a, with a more powerful force on the other side. There is, there is no such thing as an empty mind. And the notion that there is an empty mind would be the death of the mind. So the mind is a continuous rolling uh, process. And to empty your mind actually means to be focused on 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 even it means to be focused on emptying your mind. It's like saying, don't think of the elephant. You end up just thinking of the elephant. I mean, you know, that's not, not thinking of something. Um, and it's interesting, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed in his, you know, he's, he's written lots of books and one of them is a compiled book of his sayings, Malfuzat. In that book, he talks about the different stages. It was one of the volumes, I think it's volume two. He talks about the different stages of spirituality that are listed in Islam. There's the righteous, which is the first level. Then there's the uh, then there's the um, shaheed, which is the martyr or the one who submit, um, completely gives over their life to God. And you'd think that's like the highest stage. It's only the second of four. <laughs> and then there's the siddiq, which means the person who's truthful. They become an embodiment of truth itself. And then there's the prophets. And Mirza Ghulam Ahmad in this um book he talks about the stages and the ranks of each of these categories and what he wrote about the prophets i had never heard in my life him write anywhere else i've never heard anybody else say it and what he wrote was he said the prophets of god are in a are they throughout throughout their entire life they never speak to themselves he said they never speak to themselves they never have a conversation with their own ego he said they only speak to god in their mind now, you consider that, what that means. I mean, it's mind-blowing, actually. It means they're in a continuous state of prayer because they recognize that their ego will intrude at any given possible opportunity. Okay? And the only way to keep it out is to supplant it with something greater. And that is, the only thing is greater is God. So that's actually the highest level of consciousness is to become God-conscious, conscious of God. And and then God, as it says in the Friday sermon in Arabic that Muslims read, you know, call upon Allah, he will respond to you. And that is why God speaks to them, because they're in a continuous state of calling upon God. And we have several articles actually talking about that, uh, talking about the rational basis for believing in revelation. We have one on scientific miracles of the Quran. We have another one recently on um, uh, signs of the latter days, which are prophesied. Uh, and we have many others uh, which discuss evidence for God, because I know we this is our whole show is rational religion, so we believe in the rational evidence for God as well as the spiritual side of things, and really they're two sides of the same coin, because it's uh, rational to be spiritual. Um, so, Demir, are you going to be going back to any mindfulness courses? 
I don't think so. Before I started, I thought maybe I'd like to be a mindfulness instructor, but I think doing the course put me off that. <laughs> if it would cause a revolution. You're such but a good-natured it... guy, man. <laughs> you, should, you should run a really polite and gentrified um, anti-mindfulness course. <laughs> mindfulness hate group. <laughs> no, no. no let's, I, let's not I, say that. No, I don't hate mindfulness at all, but I, I think that it's the rolling out across society that can cause a lot of harm and damage. And you can see with the prophets of God how they managed to create such revolutions within their society, given their, their philosophies and their mindsets. And it wasn't non-judgmental awareness. It wasn't non-judgmental awareness, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think that that's, in a way, that's the key to establishing peace in the world now and justice in the world. It's by people with true... Uh, righteousness, true goodness, and true morality actually coming up and, and changing society for the better. And I think we can all do that as individuals to the best of our abilities. Excellent. Well, uh, I think everyone can go and read uh, Demir's fantastic article. It's a very fair article as well. It talks about some strengths of mindfulness, but also the way it's presented is, um, is misleading. Uh, and so you can well put a, an image of that up now. And please go and read that and share it with your friends because it's a it's the best thing I think you've ever written and you've written a fantastic book. Uh, tell us what the book is called and where people can get it. The book is called Emergence, the journey of a young British Muslim living in an age of extremism. Um, Emergence is the title. It's rather long, sorry. Um, but you can <laughs> you can get it from and, Amazon. And chapter, could you read? <laughs> it's, it's essentially a book about being a young British westerner in today's age and going through my university years with this kind of um dilemma of is materialism and doing the kind of university culture kind of life more um fulfilling and more true than living a religious lifestyle uh and i think it's kind of um an insight into that in a way uh and it talks about a number of number of things to do with that it don't give us don't give away what you actually what conclusion you came to we'll let the readers figure that out um, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll direct everyone to that book um, so thank you very much for coming on to the show and thank you brother Dahir for, for joining us as always yeah and we're going to have Demir on for I'm sure many other shows in, in the future God willing he'll become a, a regular God willing um, and for you guys at home thank you very much for watching or listening if you're listening to our podcast version um, subscribe to us on YouTube if you're watching on YouTube leave a comment below uh, hit the bell when you subscribe and um, go to rationalreligion.co.uk and follow us on all the social media sites that we have and do all the various things that would make us happy. Um, so until, <laughs> <laughs> until next time, thank you very much and peace be upon you. Peace be on you.